Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. I'm joined by Brad Moldenhauer, Vice President in Zscaler's Office of the CISO, where he drives global security transformation and innovation across all facets of business strategy, products, operations, with a strong focus on customer value creation. Brad has over 20 years of progressive IT security experience across consulting and operational leadership roles with a successful track record of strategizing, architecting, and implementing data security and risk management programs. Brad, it's always great to see you again, my friend. How have you been? Yeah, yeah, been good. And uh, as always, I enjoy coming on uh, this pod and uh, looking forward to today's dialogue as well. (laughs) It must be like coming back home since you kicked this thing off back in the day. Yeah, yeah. But now, hey, (laughs) I guess now, I, I don't know how you would put that, but founder and now longtime listener, that's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. You like the George Lucas of the podcast. Yeah, you can, exactly. You can, you can sit back and just critique and then just go, I can't believe what they're doing to my baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, believe me, it's been improved tenfold. Brad, you and I were chatting um, a couple of weeks ago, and I know that uh, you and Dan and, and Chris were having some conversations, and we were hoping to double-click into a cyber materiality which is something that I'm hearing in various discussions. You're speaking with some of the largest companies in the world on a daily basis. Is this something also that is resonating with both your customers and your peer group? Simply put, yes. What I think has surprised me a little bit is how a number of CISOs of obviously publicly traded companies have been reaching out to their peer groups, including myself, and really getting our take or our position on how to define cyber materiality. And it's interesting because I, I, I think financial officers have been doing this for quite some time, even pre-SOX. The calculation of materiality can be a complex task. And I think for cyber, it, it requires a high degree of professional judgment, right? And I, it's just, it, it's interesting to me be, be, because a lot of CISOs that really come at this from a technology background, like for instance, they didn't have much of a finance background or they weren't in charge of wholesale operations. It's interesting listening to some of them almost turn this into a, a financial exercise. And I think that's where part of the challenge is coming from. Because like usually, and let's put ourselves in the role of a, a financial officer for a publicly traded company, they'll say something like, Usually uh, a significant financial balance or a line item on a financial report gets selected and a percentage is applied to that. And materiality could be 2% to 5% of the total sales, 2% or greater of total assets, and or 5 to 10% of the net profit. And that's where I think a lot of CISOs are like, what did you just say? So it's interesting to me that they're struggling with this because I think they're looking at it from that perspective. And what I've been trying to do is just simplify everything. It's first and foremost, in my mind, the macro level perspective of my role as a CISO is to prevent material risk or material impact on the business functions of the organization. At the end of the day, 
That is what the board and shareholders are going to care most about. And that should be our design goal. No material event. Everything else is an operational risk, which we need to manage. But at the same time, we know that does not cause the same level of impact. And when I start explaining it that way, now I'm speaking a language they understand. And it really ends up driving to be a really good dialogue, leveraging what it is they have and what they know to help them really define cyber materiality within their businesses. Are you saying that there's a lack of clarity and definition of materiality? Or is it that perhaps the way that we've addressed it as practitioners in the past, it comes more in the form of a risk analysis where impact is a qualitative or qualitative figure? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. Again, simplifying this, unlike, let's say, I don't know, a factory fire that immediately knocks out production, a cyber attack's fallout might not be apparent right away. And if you take a look at the SEC's ruling, what, what was it? I think they they want cyber attacks to be reported no later than four days after to determine if there's a material impact. And that, I think, is very challenging in and of itself. Because look, let's take another example. What looks like a minor breach of maybe 100 customer records might be discovered to be 1 million as an investigation continues on. It's common to see companies disclose a pileup of attack costs within each quarterly financial statement. I think that that's standard, really. And this this four-day reporting window, I think, has a lot of CISOs frazzled. Well, we've had reporting requirements, uh, certainly here in the state of California. They've been in place for some time, and I'm sure we could double-click into examples of where those reporting requirements haven't been met. Do you right. anticipate that because of the reach and influence and ultimately power that the SEC has, over public companies that these reporting requirements would be taken far more seriously? Yeah, I, I think that's the big challenge. This is all nascent, especially when it comes to breach reporting. Now, in fairness, there are several companies um, publicly traded that have had some kind of cyber breach in the past that predates this within you know the last you know decade or so. And working internally with their executive staffs, They've determined that those did cause a material impact and they've reported them either, either in an 8K or a 10K. So it's not that it's a new practice, but now I think the fact that it's compulsory, that is really what's driving a lot of the concern. And then unfortunately, we've already had some concrete examples with some pretty major organizations in the last few months. And it's funny to say that because if they're publicly traded, generally they're going to be major, right? Yeah. The thing you mentioned at the beginning, which is, is it really material or is it not? The guidance that's been provided so far, have you found it to be sufficient in informing that decision-making or is it still lacking in your perspective? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I, I would say probably lacking because they've left it so open-ended. And that's, I, I think, frankly, because nobody has any idea right now, or I would like to believe it's because this is always going to be more open-ended. So what I've been trying to do, again, going back to my principle of really trying to simplify this, I'm like, look, this is nothing new for us. Maybe the way we define it is, but anytime you have an incident, I would structure it based on one of three categories. 
And the way you could look at that, and I just quickly threw down my thoughts, but you could say it almost make it like a, a material risk, cyber risk pyramid. At the high level, you have what's known as an extinction level event. And maybe a good example of that is what recently occurred with Silicon Valley Bank. Now, obviously that wasn't caused by a cyber incident, but Let's assume that from a security perspective, a ransomware attack where uh, an organization couldn't recover data for a system driving a critical business process went offline permanently. That would be an extinction level event. I think we've seen that with smaller private practice physician offices with ransomware events where maybe they were a couple of years away from calling it a career anyway. They just said, you know what, I'm not going to pay all this and recover from it. I'm just going to you know, throw in the towel. So I would say that's probably the high level event. The next one could be something like a life-threatening event, a large reportable privacy event, such as the OPM breach from 2015. Another solid example of this, we don't have to look too far in the past. What happened in December of 2020, where FireEye published research that a malicious actor was exploiting a supply chain vulnerability in SolarWinds products to hack into government and private sector business networks. Following that publication, Homeland Security issued an emergency directive requiring federal agencies to remove almost their entire SolarWinds footprint from agency networks. That right there, I think SolarWinds obviously survived from that, but that event was not only material to them and its shareholders, but also to many of its customers and society. So that's the other aspect of it is these material events could be far more than just business impacting. They could impact shareholders and society at large. If you have an event that meets one of those two criterias, that's something that maybe you can define and say, hey, this is going to have a material impact and this is something we're going to need to report. Because at the foundational level of that triangle, I would just bump into operational risk. Mm -hmm. These are the things that can hurt, but they're not life-threatening. And in, and in most instances, be easily recovered from. As an example, a phishing attack where credentials are compromised, but there's no attack path to critical systems or data. If that was me, my incident response team would focus on resetting passwords for a group, and then we'd reevaluate our controls to mitigate the account takeover attack. That is not going to have a material impact on the business if it you know, stays within those guardrails. The SolarWinds situation is an interesting one because one could make an argument that the remediation of that particular attack vector was effectively solved by updating the software. So if we were to take that as an example, which was not an insignificant breach, but if we applied it to the daily cacophony of zero that we all run into, at what point do those start becoming potentially material? Yeah. Well, with SolarWinds, I think we do have to make an exception because what realistically happened there, their, their source code assembly line was essentially compromised. The malicious actors had compromised a, a code signing certificate. Yeah. In that scenario, I think the view at the time when making a lot of these decisions were these guys have essentially had their entire product line compromised. And that, that leads to another interesting discussion, which is a CISO's role in an organization, whether or not they have oversight of just the corporate 
in business environment, or if they also have security oversight of the product environment too. My opinions never wavered in this stance, which is I think they should be in charge of both. That way they have a holistic view of risk, right? But digressing a bit. Yeah, I, I think in a scenario where you have a product that could be SaaS delivered, could be something that organizations you know install uh, throughout their business environments. I, I, I think if you do have some kind of zero day exploit, I think you really gain a lot of goodwill in meeting your remediation timelines and making sure that a a proper fix was out within those stated timelines. And really, I, I think that's what we need to just look for in our vendors. But that's what the threat landscape is there for, to constantly hit at that and, and chip away at it. You mentioned that a lot of your approach is around simplification and looking at applying things that we've done as practitioners in the past in this new world. Could you give a couple of examples of how in your roles as technology and security leader, you've defined materiality outside of the current definitions coming from legislative vehicles. Yeah. The other aspect of it is where I laid out those three types of, of incidents. I think the other thing that's incredibly important to look at here, especially if you're publicly traded, are the three primary types of what I would call impact, which at a high level, I think would be financial, brand, and societal. Because Sometimes we get too fixated in just looking at the financial risk associated with an incident. And I would say the, the primary individuals that are impacted by financial, by financial risk would be obviously the business, but also shareholders. Now, when you take a look at brand impact, that's when it starts impacting your customers. And I'll tell you what, from a threat landscape, especially when you consider a lot of ransomware gangs out there. That's where they want to hit because let's take a look at what happened with Garmin. Remember when Garmin suffered that massive ransomware event? They were very tight-lipped about that. They just said, hey, we're, our website's down and we're looking into this. But then what happened next? That ransomware attack spread to their cloud where all of their global customers and all of their wearables and everything else were communicating to, and it was completely impacted. When you start impacting an organization's customers, that's when you're going to start seeing them respond, at least publicly, as to what's going on, right? And then finally, something that I think we've been doing a better job in recent times is looking at it from a societal risk impact. For instance, I know it's a well-publicized breach with what happened with Maersk, where you essentially had all these shipping containers that were floating around the world and just had no idea where their destination was or what cargo they even had on board any longer. That right there caused far-reaching impact in countries all over the world that weren't receiving their consignments. And that just impacted the global economy on a scale that I think even the ransomware authors probably never anticipated, right? It just, it reminds me of a conference I was at almost a decade ago, and it was a room full of CISOs. I think there were about 50 of us that were there. And the MC of the event was fairly tight with the CISO of a really large financial company that had recently gone through a large breach. And the comment that had been made was, at what point do these breaches actually become problematic? This is before the rise of ransomware as a service and all these other types of things. But the comment stuck with me because 
the response that I heard was not what I expected. It was, oh, well, we're actually doing pretty, is what the one CISO responded with. Mm -hmm. And the MC responded with, well, how's your stock doing? And the CISO very glibly responds and says, we just hit our highest peak, like in the history of the company. Yeah. Yeah. And it took the air out of the room because you, you could almost feel the energy of everyone go like, what the hell are we doing here then? Like... If oh, this yeah. is the situation, then yeah. Oh, what, yeah. what yeah. does it all and, mean? Yeah. And, you know, I, that's fascinating, too. The other thing that in maybe SolarWinds probably changed this a little bit. One thing that used to really bother me was when an organization would suffer uh, a breach of some kind, let's say a ransomware attack, and essentially they had deployed a number of various controls. Let's just say, hey, we fully deployed this endpoint platform protection and it simply failed to do its job, right? And meanwhile, this organization is just going through the harm and just the the multitude of stress that comes with an incident like that. And what would drive me crazy was you would actually see the cybersecurity company, let's say maybe even the one who supplied the endpoint platform protection, the control that failed, their stock would skyrocket. Like, for instance, the Takata airbag, when the safety solution didn't work, their stock plummeted. And that's what happens in in a normal organization when they have some kind of product failure. I imagine, and I'm speculating because this is right around the time I was born, but we remember what Lee Iacocca did with the Ford Pinto, where essentially he didn't want to pay for like a $10 part. And meanwhile, people's cars were exploding. I don't think it was his intent to go out and kill people, right? I think that they looked at it from a business risk standpoint and said, you know what, that's going to be a pretty exorbitant cost when you add in each and every pinno that we're manufacturing and distributing globally. And so they didn't look at the societal impact of that. So there's a a number of different things there that I I think are are pretty interesting. But yeah, I, I can tell you, I don't think you're alone in having that reaction in that scenario. I think that begs another question, which is at what point does regulation step in if fully or or partially step in and say, hey, organizations, you guys are really bad at this entire risk management thing. And you're clearly not prioritizing the way that we think you should, whether true or not. And it no longer becomes a opt in, you know, similar to what we're seeing with the SEC ruling and uh, guidance that's come out where all of a sudden it's, no, you must do these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and let's take it a step further. This is what it is today. How far are we away from some kind of federal regulation with our technology products? And keep in mind, I'm not just thinking of companies like Zscaler or what we consider traditional security or technology solution providers. Every company provides technology today. We've talked about this. I've got a on an app on my phone for where I've probably inputted PII, right? And the more and more we see technology failures because of a lack of cyber resiliency that was built into those, and maybe this goes back to the whole minimal viable product, which I, I'm a firm believer. If you you know employ that, it's going to get you maximum security exposure. But how far away are we from some kind of oversight to counter the the whole idea of, hey, these companies are developing products to get that idea out to market. 
And that inconvenient truth leads to compromise. We're so focused on ensuring functionality that security can be glossed over. And finally, federal regulation says, that's it. You know what? We are going to force you to follow these cyber technology resiliency requirements. And furthermore, we're going to validate them because you know we need to make it ubiquitously and economically irrational for anyone to attack these products. So, I, I, hey, that could be in the mail. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. It's. That's a good point within certain technologies, specifically in cloud, right? We've seen federal standards show up. And from a service provider standpoint, I remember going through FISMA prep to go through an actual 3APO audit. And that was all kind of fun. Oh, yeah. But it seems to me that when it comes to anything that is not directly engaging with or selling to the federal government, everything else is really just best effort. Would you anticipate that perhaps in the future there could be something along the lines of like the FDA or the FCC that becomes a regulating body on security technology? And could you see that also extending? into some of these larger organizations. In the uh, critical infrastructure space, some of this is already in place. But when you're talking about, I don't know, a website that's responsible for booking people's travel, which may also contain sensitive information, uh, it could be a real security risk for certain individuals based upon what line of work that they're in, et cetera. Could you see that becoming something? And if so, is that something that could be right around the corner? Like you said, is it already in the mail? Yeah. I mean, if we look into the future, I I don't see why that wouldn't materialize. I probably need to give it a little more thought whether I would endorse that because in some cases, I think absolutely. With just some of the technology we've seen out in market, it could be as simple as an app or an IoT device because I, I think you and I are aware of this, but there is no longer a material difference between an espresso machine and a router, Right. And I've seen some pretty sloppy espresso machines that you could network. I, I think, unfortunately, it's in a, probably an inevitability um, that someday we do have that type of oversight. Whether or not that happens anytime soon, I, I, I doubt that. But you know what I find fascinating about all of this is what are we really talking about? We're talking about making and building secure technology products. And when you think about it, the security industry is a product of unintended consequences. You know, like for, it's not actually meant to be here. It's simply here because the air is human. And we, the security industry exists because people make mistakes. The idea of someone leaving their door open and another person exploiting that predates the internet by a couple thousand years. And that's really what we're talking about right now is putting products out the market that are used by citizens, organizations, society, and they're just not up to a specific code that makes that individual or that organization secure or invulnerable from a, a pretty rudimentary attack. So if, if that needs to be governed someday by federal oversight, which again, I, I, I think someday it, it will be, I just don't see that happening in the immediate future, but yeah, it, it is a, a high likely probability that will materialize. You mentioned the blurring or non-existence of differences with what 
we would traditionally consider IoT and even in some cases OT and how it's become so similar to standard compute. And I was watching these technical videos where it's the litmus test is, can the device play Doom, the video game? Can it actually play Doom? And I just watched a couple, a few days ago, where somebody took a $10 calculator that happens to, on the back end, be running a stripped down version of Android. And mm -hmm. sure enough, they got it to run Doom and video game memes on it. So something as simple as a inexpensive calculator is effectively a full-blown compute yeah. device. And I saw another one, which is specifically taking firewall appliances, happened to be based on an x86 processor. And sure enough, <laughs> it runs Doom. They got yeah. it outputting video the whole nine. And it's exactly what you say. It's really how different is it? If the Delta is just in firmware mm. and the differences in interfaces or accessibility of interfaces, because a lot of these devices, if you take them apart, you'll find that the motherboard itself is effectively a pared down version of a PC. And what's interesting about this is I, one, one thing I, I, I've certainly said before, and I've always fundamentally believed is that risk is temporal. The decisions that we make today could impact risk tomorrow, in a week, in a month, in 20 years. I think a great example of that is what happened with Spectre and Meltdown, where those chipsets were built like 15 years earlier. And remember, if you were working in an operational environment, oh, your board was hearing about this. This was all over the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and uh, yeah, yeah. executives wanted to know what was being done about it. And that was something... It wasn't like a, a new piece of technology it was just released in the, the preceding 12 months. This was embedded in the entire technological fabric of organizations from their servers, workloads, endpoint computers, everything. But yeah, these, that's another aspect of the whole cyber resiliency piece that I, uh, wouldn't that be very tough to assess the risk on that? <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. You're like, because at that point, it's like, We've all gone through and done those uh, physical walkthroughs, and there's always that one question about access to the physical hardware. And uh, you can always come up with various methods of attacking the hardware, but the idea that simply providing access to the hardware immediately leads to, or may lead to, a full compromise mm -hmm. uh, seemed pretty far-fetched a while yeah, because of the complexity associated with that, where you're actually sitting down with a circuit board and trying to figure out which EEPROM does what, et cetera. Yeah. But as, as a lot of these technologies on the back end become far more similar, more alike, I, I think this scenario of where various attacks, both physical and those that can be done remotely, uh, becomes not just more viable, but potentially more lucrative for those that are profiteering off of the, the bad luck or bad decisions of organizations really haven't prepared themselves for that. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Brad, the subject of cyber materiality and in particular, the definition of it and the things that go into defining it. If I'm sitting in the CISO chair today, 
and I'm trying to find a starting point to inform my peers, the organization that I serve, or if I'm an advisor to one of these organizations, and this has not yet been codified within the organization, what would you recommend to the practitioner in terms of where they could potentially start? Yeah. So, you know, what I was talking about earlier, I think kind of forms the basis of what I think we're going to start seeing probably called something like maybe, I don't know, materiality assessments. And those can and should inform both your reporting of risk, largely by looking backward, I believe, and your strategy, which is largely looking forward, you know, to manage and mitigate, you know, the said risks, right? So I think where to start, you start with the business, its financial statements, its value chain, understanding the context, how it relates to uh, applications, systems, and data within the organization is the cornerstone of a materiality assessment. From there, I think focus on how an information asset can be compromised. That's something CISOs are going to have a, a strong understanding of. Look for direct and indirect relationships that could cause exposure. Go beyond the attack surface and look at the attack depth that exists. Take the attacker's perspective here, right? And then finally, two things, prioritize and automate, right? Because otherwise, your time to contextualize will take way too long and the complexity will be way too great, especially in a typical publicly traded environment. Brad, something that you just said got me thinking is the traditional Sarbanes-Oxley style reporting, which is determine your scope, determine what is material, in this case, financial reporting or financial impact. Would you see that potentially being a vehicle for extending this? Yeah, yeah, I definitely see it as an input. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, look, cash is king, right? <laughs> I think if you you start from that perspective, I see that as a major input. But just as I mentioned, starting at the foundational layer of the business. And hey, since we've already been regulated to provide that that level of financial reporting now for our, for over two decades, I think it's a great initial input to really take a look at executing what I would call a cyber materiality assessment. Yeah. The other thing you and I joked on this not too long ago is how long do we uh, anticipate before uh, a customer is doing their third party or supplier due diligence and they want to see, hey, how do you define material events in your incident response plan? I'm surprised I haven't gotten that request yet, but it's coming. It's absolutely coming. Do you mean events in terms of what kicks off the IR or material events in terms of once you're in the middle of executing against the incident response? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know, you have a, a, you've identified and well, even if it's not one, like that falls into what I would call the operational risk bucket, there still needs to be some kind of exercise where you look at that against how you're def- a material exposure that's ultimately reportable. So yeah, absolutely. Brad, it's always great to have you back on the show. Always appreciate your insights. Yeah, Yeah, and and the thing is, and I hate to end on this note, but we're probably going to have more publicized events where organizations do have to report on a material cyber incident. But at the same time, I, I try to look at the benefit of that. There is a modicum of information sharing that comes about that. It's going to really help, I think, organizations define cyber materiality 
and what their cyber materiality assessments should comprise. So I should probably look at it from that perspective. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a bunch, Sean. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Crudillo. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com.